So I start part two, continuation of my reading of this wonderful text that I found this morning, or this afternoon, actually. It's after one o'clock in the afternoon already. Um, about Henri. And I don't know why I was calling him Henry. <laughs> that's the Americanized, that's the Americanized translation of his real name in France. Henri. Henri Matisse. Yeah. Anyway, so we were on page three, and I I think I also have something to add about, I think this might be a different reading from what I read earlier, What from the book that I was, got the gallery going, the experience of looking at art and where I found this article. It said it was from Notes of a Painter on His Drawing, 1939. So that might be a different, a whole different piece from him but when I googled uh, notes of a painter Matisse this is what came up and I'm so glad I found it ah, I'm so glad I found it okay so now we're um we had just finished where he was I prefer by insisting upon its essential character to risk losing charm in order to obtain greater stability that's where we left off so here's the next paragraph Underlying this succession of moments which constitutes the superficial existence of beings and things and which is continually modifying and transforming them, one can search for a truer, more essential character which the artist will seize, seize, like S-E-I-Z-E, seize, so that he may give to reality a more lasting interpretation. Hmm. When we go into the 17th and 18th century sculpture rooms in the Louvre and look, for example, at Puget, we can see that the expression is forced and exaggerated to the point of being disquieting. It is quite a different matter if we go to the Luxembourg the attitude in which the sculptors catch their models is always the one in which the development of the members and tensions of the muscles will be shown to greatest advantage. And yet movement thus understood corresponds to nothing in nature. When we capture it by surprise in a snapshot, the resulting image reminds us of, noth of nothing that we have seen. Movement seized while it is going on is meaningful to us only if we do not isolate the present sensation either from that which precedes it or that which follows it. Hmm. And yet movement thus understood corresponds to nothing in nature when we capture it by surprise in a snapshot, the resulting image reminds us of nothing that we have seen. Movement seized while it is going on is meaningful to us only if we do not isolate the present sensation, either from that which precedes it or that which follows it. There are two ways of, of expressing things. One is to show them crudely. The other is to evoke them through art. By removing oneself from the literal representation of movement, one attains greater beauty and grandeur. 
Look at an Egyptian statue. It looks rigid to us, yet we sense in its in it the image of a body capable of movement and which despite its rigidity is animated. The Greeks too are calm. A man hurling a discus will be caught at the moment in which he gathers his strength or at least if he is shown in the most strained and precarious position implied by his action, the sculptor will have epitomized and condensed it so that the equilibrium is reestablished, thereby suggesting the idea of duration. Movement is in itself unstable, and it is not suited to something durable, like a statue, unless the artist is aware of the entire action of which he represents only a moment. Hmm, yeah, yeah, I get that. That's kind of what this guy was talking about this morning as well in that video was uh, he actually began painting or created these paintings to physically know or at least be able to visualize and look at the creation he made in front of him to put into his writing, his story. I thought that was fascinating. And uh, I'm a visual learner and a hands-on learner as well and I think sometimes even in my painting I have to recreate certain things like for instance one time <laughs> this is going to be an aside I was working on a series for going back to Denmark to do a talk on my family of origin heritage I was I was in a residency there from in the actual town where my ancestors came from they had this art residency and um uh i wanted to portray a poem that my grandmother had well no it wasn't a poem my famo had written a story about herself going to the cemetery with her famo and maybe it was her momo. I think it was her momo. It wasn't her famo. Yeah. And her mother's mother. So my great-great-grandmother. Great-great-great. Yeah. It doesn't matter. But anyway, she was telling the story about having to hike up her skirts and hold the flowers and hold the barbed wire open for her grandmother to get under into the cemetery and i wanted to i wanted to capture that moment and i looked and looked for images i i acted out the images myself trying to get selfies in my in positions of what that would look like um just to abstract it i wasn't even going to make it um a realistic painting I wanted to abstract the figure in that form. And <laughs> oh, what a nightmare it was. I was making my own selfies in that different positions. And finally, I was up at my granddaughter's and I asked her to pose for me to to do that. I She had some sort of skirt on. that I said, I asked her, would you mind doing a few things? I explained to her, you know, what I was doing in my painting. I explained to her that my grandmother had to do this to get in under a fence, and I wanted to paint it, but I couldn't get 
the figure in the right spot. I don't know. She was nine or ten when I, I asked her. And so she did. She sort of acted out. I asked her to crouch kind of down like she was going under a fence, under a wire, and hold up her skirt kind of, you know, like you would so you wouldn't catch it on the barbed wire. And <laughs> It's nuts, isn't it? I don't know why I'm going into this. What made me think of that? Um, the movement, yeah. It, it's unstable and it's not suited to something durable like a statue unless the artist is aware of the entire action of what he represents only a only a moment and and I needed that for some reason and I needed pictures of what it would look like with hands on a horse rein because one of my grandmother's stories was uh was about her having to ride horses during a childbirth she had to go get the doctor and she nearly capsized this horse and cart around a corner in uh, in her town and 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 so I was trying to recreate that but you have to sort of build that almost you have to visualize it you have to draw it you have to see it before you can even abstract it so yeah okay long-winded explanation for what that brought up for me movement in itself is unstable is not suited to something durable like a statue unless the artist is aware of the entire action of which he represents only a moment I must precisely define the character of the object. Another aside real quick. I think that's why artists also paint about what they know or, you know, um, or what their background is. You know, I think that's because you paint from ex- your own experience. You're, it's somewhat autobiographical work in, in essence, um, unless you build it up like, like, for instance, that author was talking about. Ugh. Okay, I'm going on. I must precisely define the character of the object or of the body that I wish to paint. Mm-hmm. To do so, I studied my method very closely. If I put a black dot on a sheet of white paper, the dot will be visible no matter how far away I hold it. It is, as, it is a clear notation. But beside this dot, I place another one, and then a third, and already there is confusion. In order for the first dot to maintain its value, I must enlarge it as I put other marks on the paper. If upon a white canvas I set down some sensations of blue, of green, of red, each new stroke diminishes the importance of the preceding ones. Suppose I have to paint an interior I have before me a cupboard. It gives me a sensation of vivid red. I put down a red I put down a red which satisfies me. A relation is established between this red and the white of the canvas. A relation is established oh I already said that. Let me put a green near the red and make the floor yellow, and again there will be a relationship There will be relationships between the green or yellow and the white of the canvas, which will satisfy me. But these different tones mutually weaken one another. It is necessary that the various marks I use to be used be balanced so that they do not destroy each other. To do this, I must organize my ideas. The relationships between the tones must be such that it will sustain and not destroy them. A new combination of colors will succeed the first 
and render the totality of my representation. I am forced to transpose until I finally, sorry, I am forced to transpose until finally my picture may seem completely un, may, may seem completely changed when, after successive modifications, the red has succeeded the green as the dominant color. I cannot copy nature in a servile way. I am forced to interpret nature and submit it to the spirit of the picture. From the relationship I have found in all the tones, there must result a living harmony of colors, a harmony analogous to that of a musical composition. Oh, God, this is rich. This is so rich. I'm so glad I found this. Thank you. Okay. Wow. Yeah. For me, all is in the conception. I must therefore have a clear vision of the whole from the beginning. Hmm. I don't know that I have that. I could mention a great sculptor who gives us some admirable pieces, but for him, a composition is merely a grouping of fragments, which results in a confusion of expression. Look instead at one of Cezanne's pictures. All is so well arranged that no matter at what distance you stand or how many figures are represented, you will always be able to distinguish each figure clearly and to know which limb belongs to which body. If there is order and clarity in the picture, I, it means that from the outset this same order and clarity existed in the mind of the painter, or that the painter was conscious of their necessity. That's more like it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry, Matisse. I'm going to have to disagree with you there. <laughs> oh, boy. Especially after... What did I was just listening to some other painter recently. I don't even remember who it was now. But they were talking about mixing their paint on the canvas. <laughs> and I, and that's how they happened on to surprises. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what happens. You have to be open to where the painting is going to... Oops! I almost dropped this. Takes it. Takes you. Because otherwise, you won't experience newness and... And... Uh, traveling in your own work. Now, where am I? Because I just dropped my my thing here. Where did I just finish off? Oh, yeah. So, where did he say? Oh, yeah, he was talking about Cezanne and how he had to, the painter was conscious of their, their that's it. If there is order and clarity in the picture, it means that from the outset the same order and clarity existed in the mind of the painter or that the painter was conscious of their, necessi of their necessity. And I thought, yeah, that's it. You do. That's the, for me, that's um, what comes back. I never know where my painting's going to go. I start out with an idea of what I want to paint about. Like, for instance, these Danish series is all about places that I was there in the experience I had there, the feelings I had there, uh, with a subject matter sort of there tied into the, each piece. But I don't know where this paint, these paintings are f starting from the very beginning. I don't know how they're going to end up. You know, I do know at the end or towards the end and towards, you know, as I make decisions in the work that I have to pay attention 
to composition and to tones and hues of color and, and where I'm putting a line and what I want to highlight and what I don't, what I want to make come forward, what I want to make go back. And what I want to, you know, the preciousness of some of the lines or the color that you love sometimes have to disappear even to to finish the work. So this is very fascinating. You definitely have to be conscious of the necessity. Now where am I? Just put this. Um... Limbs may cross and intertwine, but in the eyes of the spectator, they will nevertheless remain attached to and help to articulate the right body. All confusion has disappeared. Yeah. I'm looking at that in my Egoscope piece and my Swans piece and my Hans Christian Andersen piece uh, because I have all of these quote-unquote limbs right now going in all directions. And as I worked these pieces, I had to make some decisions on what belongs to what. Yeah, interesting. Chief function of color should be to serve expression as well as possible. I put down my tones without a preconceived plan. Oh, thank you, Matisse. <laughs> if at all, if at first and perhaps without my having been cons conscious of it, one tone has particularly seduced or caught me. More often than not, once the picture is finished, I will notice that I have respected this tone while I progressively altered and transformed all the others. Yeah, totally. The expressive aspect of colors imposes itself on me in a purely instinctive way. Amen. To paint an autumn landscape, I will not try to re remember the colors suit, what colors suit this season. I will be inspired only by the sensation that the season arouses in me. The icy purity of the sour blue sky will express the season just as well as the nuances of foliage or foliage, foliage. My sensation itself may vary. The autumn may be soft and warm, like a continuation of summer, or quite cool with a cold sky and lemon-yellow trees that give a chilly impression and already announce winter. My choice of colors does not rest in any scientific theory. It is based on observation or sensitivity, on felt experiences. Inspired by complementary colors. Oh, wait, no, no, no. Inspired by certain pages of Delacroix, an artist like Signac is preoccupied with complementary colors, and the theoretical knowledge of them will lead him to use a certain tone in a certain place. But I simply try to put down colors which render my sensation. That's fascinating because I tend to go back and forth between those places of knowing what should be next to some colors to make them sing or make them pop and being more intuitive and trying to be spontaneous in where I put the color. Probably why I, why I sand back with some of my work to get some of the original 
spontaneity. And I was thinking another thing. What was that? Oh, I lost it. Theoretical knowledge. There is an impelling proportion of tones that may lead me to change the shape of a figure or to transform my composition. Until I have achieved this proportion in all the parts of the composition, I strive towards it and keep on working. Then a moment comes when all the parts have found their definite relationships, and from then on it would be impossible for me to add a stroke to my picture without having to repaint it entirely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me read that again. Then a moment comes when all the parts have found their definite relationships, and from then on it will it would be impossible for me to add a stroke to my picture without having to repaint it entirely. I think that's where I am in some of these works, especially the Agus Gove one. I keep looking at that piece with all the yellow. There's these yellow ochre type limbs, if you will, these lines that are coming out for the Agus Gove, the tree, the oak tree. And I, I just don't know what I'm going to do there. And maybe it's because I'm to that point of knowing that now what I put down, I would have to repaint the whole thing. Let me see. In reality, I think that the very theory of complementary colors is not absolute. In studying the paintings of artists who no, whose knowledge of colors depends upon instinct and feeling and on, constant, on a constant analogy with their sensations, one could define certain laws of color and so broaden the limits of color theory as it is now defined. That's very true because that's he. I don't know, he was writing this in the early 1900s, so it's definitely changed because I've taken some color. One really great color theory workshop with Mark Ains, and or Eanes, and um, he calls upon some different artists in his workshop and. There's so much subtlety you can do with color theory now. What interests me most is neither still life nor landscape, but the human figure. It is that which best permits me to express my almost religious awe towards life. I do not insist upon all the details of the face on setting them down one by one with anatomical exactitude. If I have an Italian model who at first appearance suggests nothing but a purely animal existence, I nevertheless discover his essential qualities. I penetrate amid the lines of the face, those which suggest the deep gravity which persists in every human being. A work of art must carry within itself its complete significance and a impose that upon the beholder even before he recognizes the subject matter. When I see the Giotto frescoes at Padua, I do not trouble myself to recognize which scene of the life of Christ I have before me, but I immediately understand the sentiment which emerges from it, for it is in the lines, the composition, the color. The title will only serve to confirm my impression. Oh, I love that. Matisse, you're, te you're teaching me today. Thank you. 
What I dream of is an art of balance. Sorry. What I dream of is an art of balance, of purity and serenity, devoid of troubling or depressing subject matter, an art which could be for every mental worker, for the businessman, as well as the man of letters. For example, a soothing, calming influence on the mind, something like a good armchair, which provides relaxation from physical fatigue. Often a discussion arises as to the value of a different processes. Off, sorry, let me start again. Often a discussion arises as to the value of different processes and their relationship to different temp temperaments. A distinction is made between painters who work directly from nature and those who work purely from imagination. Personally, I think neither of these methods must be preferred to the exclusion of the other. Both may be used in the turn in both may be used in turn by the same individual, either because he needs contact with objects in order to receive sensations that will excite his creative faculty or his sensations are already organized. In either case, in either case, he will be able to arrive at that totality which constitutes a picture. In any event, I think that one can judge the vitality and power of an artist who, after having received impressions directly from the spectacle of nature, is able to organize his sensations to continue his work in the same frame of mind on different days and to develop those sensa these sensations. This power proves he is sufficiently master of himself to subject himself to discipline. Hmm. The simplest means are those which best enable an artist to express himself. If he fears the banal, he cannot avoid it by appearing strange or going in for bizarre drawing in an eccentric color. His means of expression must derive almost of necessity from his temperament. He must have the humility of mind to believe that he has painted only what he has seen. I like Chardin's way of expressing it. I apply color until there is a resemblance, or Cezanne's, Cezanne's. I want to secure a likeness, or Rodin's, copy nature. Leonardo said, he who can copy can create. Those who work in a preconceived style, deliberately turning their backs on nature, miss the truth. An artist must recognize when he is reasoning that his picture is an artifice, but when he is painting, he should feel that he has copied nature, and even when he departs from nature, he must do it with the conviction that it is only to interpret, interpret it more fully. Some, I think it's interpret her more fully, it's he with a space R more fully, somehow the typing is weird. Some may say that other views on painting were expected from a painter. And I have only come out of, I'm sorry. Some may say that other views on painting were expected from a painter and that I have only come out with platitudes. To this, I shall reply that there are, are no new truths. Oh, isn't that so fascinating? Yes, exactly. 
the role of the artist, like that of the scholar, consists of seizing current truths often repeated to him, but which will take on new meaning for him and which he will make his own when he has grasped their deepest significance. If aviators had to explain to us the research which led to their leaving earth and rising in the air, they would merely confirm very elementary principles of physics neglected by less successful inventors. An artist always profits from information about himself, and I am glad to have learned what is my weak point. M. Peladan, in the review M. Domade, reproaches a certain number of painters amongst whom I think I should place myself for calling themselves foves. Oh my gosh, that's right. For calling themselves foves and yet dressing like everyone else so that they are no more noticeable than the floor walker floor walkers in a department store. Does genius count for so little? If it were only a question of myself that would set M. Pelidon's mind at ease, tomorrow I would call myself Sar and dress like a necromancer. <laughs> in the same article, this excellent writer claims that I do not paint honestly. And I would be justifiably angry if he had not, if he had not the ideal and the rules. Quote, the trouble is that he does not mention where these rules are. Oh, wait, sorry, I put the quote in the wrong place. Okay, let me do this again. In the same article, this excellent writer claims that I do not paint honestly, and I would be justifiably angry if he had not qualified his statement by saying, quote, I mean honestly with respect to the ideal and the rules, end quote. The trouble is that he does not mention where these rules are. I am willing to have them exist, but were it possible to learn them with sublime artists, we, we would have. Rules have no existence outside of individuals. Otherwise, a good professor would be as great a genius as Racine. Any one of us is capable of repeating fine maxims but few can res but few can also penetrate their meaning i am ready to admit that from a study of the works of raphael or titian a more complete set of rules can be drawn than the than from the works of manet or renoir but the rules followed by manet and renoir were those which suited their temperaments, and I prefer the most minor of the of the uh, something. Oh, Italian Renaissance paintings. I think that's what that IR means. That's weird. I prefer the most minor of the IR paintings to all the work of those who can, who are content to imitate the Venus of Urbino. Or the Madonna of the gold, or of the goldfinch. These latter are of no value to anyone, for whether we want to or not, we belong to our time, and we share in its opinions, its feelings, even its delusions. All artists bear the imprint of their time. 
but the great artists are those in whom this is most profoundly marked. Our epic, for instance, is best is better represented by Courbet than by Flandrin, by Rodin better than by Fremier. Whether we like it or not, however, insistently we call ourselves exiles between our period and ourselves. An indissoluble bond is established, and M. Peladon himself cannot escape it. The aestheticist, aestheticist, oh God, aestheticians, aesthetician, you know, aesthetics. The aestheticians of the future may perhaps use his books as evidence if they get it in their heads to prove that not that no one of our time understood anything about the art of Leonardo da Vinci. Now that is the end of that writing. And it did not include I don't think it included that piece that I read from earlier today or earlier in part one, so I'm going to have to do some searching. This is fascinating. I'm going to have to re-read and re-listen to my reading of this piece because there's a lot in here. He's speaking about his process and how he works and what he thinks of painting. I thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Hello, Robin. I um, heard your message just after I finished listening last night to part two of your, well, I think of it as the impression it has on me is your conversation with Matisse, uh, artist to artist. I found uh, the way he writes, obviously uh, it's because you're an artist yourself, what he has to uh, say in his writing is going to speak directly to issues in your experience of being an artist. But I too find that uh, even the manner of speaking is, is kind of abstract. I'm sure there's a scientific way of understanding the impact of color on human emotions, but I defy anybody to do it. It's odd, I don't think I can add my sent messages to Robert's comment. So I will try to make a short cast, recast of what I sent back to him. My comment back to him was that his comment about emotion and color made me start thinking, and I I thought about color theory, but I also thought, there is a psychology, I think, to color between warm co- colors and cool colors. And one at one point, I had wanted to look into doing some color, I mean, uh, some art therapy. So I think there is some, some validity or some studies on color and emotion. Um... And then I also sent him a message regarding as as I create work, um, I'm wondering now, 
thinking about it, if I choose color based on any sort of emotions I'm feeling, I'm going to be a little more attentive to that. Maybe I will or maybe I won't. Sometimes I forget about things. But um, I tend to go towards a lot of warm colors and I try to force myself sometimes to use the cooler colors and they feel when I I know that when they when I use cooler colors I tend to feel like the painting's not finished interestingly huh anyway interesting comment Robert and thank you for that and I guess this is how I have to respond to add it to my to add it to the conversation about Matisse. Hmm. Thank you.